Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Pastor Sean here, and thanks for tuning in. And uh, if you were with us last week, thanks for coming in to drive in church. We'll be doing that again next week. If you are not a member of Redemption Hill Church and you came in to drive in church, thanks for coming. And thanks again for tuning into this particular sermon. You're welcome to come back and enjoy drive in church next week. Drive in church <laughs> in the country. So, in these unique times, we've got to be creative in how we meet together. But uh, from what I hear from uh, many of you, uh, it was a blessing, and it was pretty awesome just to see each other uh, in light of uh, social distancing and our particular context of not even, not even being able to meet in a facility at this particular moment. Well, before getting into today's passage, I just want to r- remind you of where we're at and a little bit of where we're going. We're in the middle of this sermon series called Mercy and Wrath. Here's the big picture, and just in case you're joining us for the first time. God is good. We see the goodness of God all throughout Scripture. And in, in God's goodness, He executes mercy, meaning uh, we deserve, as sinners, as rebellious sinners, we deserve God's retributive justice. We deserve wrath. We, we, we deserve judgment. But because of God's mercy, He has, in a sense, stayed His hand. He has extended mercy to us, and, and as Christians, He's put uh, the punishment of our sin upon Jesus Christ. Well, we see God's mercy on display as we go through the book of Jonah. And there's clear Christological connections with the cross throughout Jonah. Now, God in his goodness also executes wrath, or what I've been saying over and over again, his retributive justice. Because we are rebellious, because we have sinned, we deserve to be judged for our sin. And so we'll dip our toe into the book of Nahum after we've gone through the entire book of Jonah. We'll talk about the hard questions. How is a good God executing justice on people? Those are thorny questions, but we as Christians need to think well and rightly about that. So that's where we're at, and that's kind of a little bit of where we're headed in the weeks ahead. So with that, I'm just going to pray briefly, and I want to invite you to pray with me, and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. And uh, as we see throughout Scripture, and we know for our own lives, you are faithful. (laughs) You are faithful uh, to us as a good God. And so we thank you for who you are in light of who we are. That your faithfulness is clearly seen not only in Scripture, but in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so today, may our affection for, for you grow as we understand better what it means for you to exercise and, and demonstrate mercy on a sinful people. And may that lead us to the cross. Well, we know uh, you have lavished your mercy upon your people through Jesus Christ. So by the power of your Spirit, lead us as we look well at your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a Christian father of two, I have a a degree of control over my children, especially at their current ages. They're they're younger. Uh, The Lord has entrusted me to teach them about the Christian faith and, uh, in a sense, provide for them in a very real way. I'm called to protect them from things that are not good, and there are plenty of things that are not good. I'm called to listen to their imaginative stories, which my kids got a ton of imaginative stories, and at the moment, I'm called to occasionally play Uno with them and play chess with them. The degree of control that I have 
over my children is clearly perceived when it comes to rules and uh, discipline. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, let me give you a fictitious example about the degree, degree of control God has entrusted me to have over the life of my children. Uh, my kiddos, and again, this is fictitious. They've done good to obey this particular rule, so hypothetical. Uh, my kiddos know not to play in the road unless A, I am with them, or B, they have communicated with me that they're going into the road. So we got this gravel road, and there's the mailbox. So if they're like, hey, Dad, uh, I'm going to go get the mail. I just want to let you know I'm going the road. He's like, all right, I can see you. Go ahead. And, you know, there's not a lot of traffic, but, you know, cars can go fast down this particular road. So as a parent, I've created a rule. Uh, my wife and I think that we, we want them to be safe, and so let us know, or we're going to accompany you into the road. So my kids understand, as uh, precious and, and imperfect as they are, that breaking the rule results in discipline. Oftentimes, how I discipline is dependent upon how they respond to their transgression. So if they go into the road to play, but they haven't done A, uh, allowed me to be with them or be communicated with me, then there will be consequences for their actions. Now, how they respond to that is critical. If they are stubborn and defiant about their sin, then my judgment will match their crime, as it were. Uh, I think this is good parenting because mu- kids must learn that some rules have been created. Why? Because for their protection, right? Like, rules are created because we care. However, if they respond with sincere repentance, not like earthly sorrow, like, oh, sad, uh, I'm sorry, Dad, don't, don't, don't punish me, but like true repentance, like, I know what I did was wrong, Dad, and I'm sorry, please forgive me. If they respond that way, then you know what they receive? Mercy. Mercy. I will hold uh, the discipline that they do deserve and say, all right, I think you're getting it here will not discipline you, even though we all agree and all know that you deserve it. So in this situation, whether my kids receive mercy or not, is conditioned upon how they respond to their sin. If they do this or respond this way, then I'll do that. If they do that, then I'll do this. We see a similar dynamic at several points throughout the scripture, and we certainly uh, come to a head this morning in the book of Jonah. God commissioned our reluctant prophet to preach against the evil of the Ninevites. If the Ninevites refuse to heed God's warning, then they will be punished accordingly, (laughs) meaning they will be wiped off the face of the earth. If they turn from their wicked ways, then maybe, just Maybe God will stay his hand. I mean, that's an important idea to grasp here. So here's a quick review from last week, and then I'll dive into the details of verses 6 to 10 of Jonah 3. Uh, We do have much to learn from Nineveh and from God. So last week, I spent some time looking at the message of Jonah along with the initial response of the people of Nineveh. You might remember Jonah's message at least what we know of his message, is the shortest recorded sermon in the Bible. It's brief. Here it is. Uh, Yet for 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. In the English, that's eight words. Eight words in the English. That's it. And uh, you know what? Nineveh got the point. 
they knew what Jonah and his God was trying to communicate to them. They didn't need anything else to hear. Nineveh needs to get its act together or else. What is the chief issue God has with Nineveh? We've seen this several times throughout the story so far. They are a wicked people. They've done evil deeds. Uh, they are Jonah's version of their, or the, I should say, from the Jonah's version, they're like Nazi Germany. They are perhaps our version of like Sin City, Las Vegas, or Bourbon Street in New Orleans. There's nothing good or godly about those particular places when you go there. Well, we read in verse 3 of chapter 3 that Nineveh believed God, and so a fast was called. They also put on sackcloth, so the rich and the poor, they repented and put on sackcloth. This, there's this idea that uh, people, uh, the, the, the repentance and the message was being received and it was transcending social and economic barriers. So the rich and the poor all were doing this, the whole entire city. It's clear the call to repentance was this corporate endeavor. Well, this morning we bump into, a, we bump into similar themes with one key difference. The focus of the response to Jonah's message is on the king of Nineveh. And for a moment, in our journey throughout this book, the prophet Jonah is not mentioned. Instead, who do we hear and who do we see? We see the king of Nineveh, uh, the people of Nineveh, God, and uh, animals. Which, we've got to talk a little bit about what do we do with the animals in this particular passage, because it's a little bit bizarre to our own sensibilities. The burning question, however... Uh, is this, will God relent from his wrath on Nineveh, right? Will God, once again, stay his hand? Or will God execute his retributive justice or wrath on their wickedness? There is only one way for Nineveh to find out, and it's this, repent, repent. So after an upswell from the city of Nineveh, news of Jonah's message finally reaches the king. And in verse 6, sometimes that's translated right away, right away as when, indicating that it's gone to the people and then the king finally heard this message from Jonah. You know, imagine with me for a moment that you are like a, the mayor of the city that you live in, right? Life seems to be going great. You are breaking, you are basking in the greatness of your local city. And then all of a sudden there's like this grassroots movement to see immediate change in your city. As a leader, you have like a decision to make. Like, do you go along with the grass movements or, or do you repel what they're saying? Do you repel the people in general? The answer to the question lies in what the grass movements is all about and whether you agree with that grassroots movement you will need to base your decision on the principles in which the movement stands for. I do not think leaders should give into a movement that has immoral principles. I do not think a leader should take the city into another direction that does not uphold the common good, that does not care for the least among us, and does not uphold the rule of law. Conversely, if the grassroots movement is pleading for a change that's that stems from violence, repudiates wickedness, that cares about the poor, that upholds biblical standards of justice, then I think change is not only good, but necessary. You see, God does oppose governments, societies, and kings that do not uphold biblical standards of common good. 
I think God does oppose those who do not uphold a rule of law that seeks the good and rightly punishes evil. I think God can bring down proud leaders who think they have it all figured out, right? Uh, We need to look no further than Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He was proud. He was haughty. He looked at his his great kingdom and God, boom, in a matter of moments, he, he sent him out to go eat with the oxen. What, I, what I'm not suggesting is that cities, states, counties, uh, the country needs to call themselves a, a Christian country or a Christian state or whatever. It seems to me the Bible is clear that there will be no theocracy until Jesus returns. However, every level of society, we see, we see, we see God's desire to see evil punished right? Justice executed, mercy extended, the vulnerable not taken advantage of, and love for others to endure. That's what God wants for our communities, for our state, for our country. I mean, these are just biblical parameters that God desires for us to live out. Let me, let me say it like this. There are biblical principles that, when established, allow countries, states, cities, communities, and families to flourish, Again, conversely, when the exact opposite of biblical principles is established, the wrath of God upon society might be lurking right around the corner, as we see with Nineveh. So when the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, he had a choice to make. What direction he's going to take the people into? Will he oppose the work of God or will he get on board? Will he, will he oppose the biblical principles that God is calling Nineveh to establish or will he continue to lead the city toward evil and wickedness? Now what we read about the king in verse 6 is quite uh, monumental and unexpected. Here, here it is. He arose from his throne got this king here on his throne, all his minions watching him. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. It seems we have an answer. Even the king was affected by the simple but powerful preaching of Jonah. The king was affected by the change he was seeing in this grassroots movement. It appears the Spirit of God was at work throughout the entire city and including in the king. The immediate actions of the king is a lesson for us all, a lesson for all leaders as well about how to respond to a message of repentance or else. In verse 6 alone, we see the king take four action steps to signify the change taking place in his heart. Actions that signify the humility growing in his heart. Although I am talking about a king here, every person can apply these steps to their life. Let's look at these particular actions that the king takes. First, the king arose from his throne of royal power. When the king arose from his throne, he began to move toward a place of submission to God, right? He was beginning to suggest that the one who is greater than he who sits on the throne of Nineveh, like, there is one who is greater than I. I cannot overstate the importance of this first step made by the king. He had power, authority, control, glory, 
anyone who had anyone who has all that um, will find the first step difficult to take, including this king. In a sense, it could be seen as a sign of weakness if the king took this step toward humility. But the king took the first courageous step, and it was a step that required humility and that led toward what we see here in a minute, repentance. Next, the king took off his royal robe, right? He, he laid aside his robe, which would have, been a, would have been large with a beautifully embroidered mantle right, right up here. Uh, when the king was uh, not on the throne, he, his, he, his royalty would have been identified by what he was wearing. So if he wasn't there on the throne, he kind of went around town. People knew he was the king because of his garb, right? What did his clothes look like? You know, I've been reading this historical novel series that takes place in 16th century England, Tudor England, and uh, I may have mentioned this in a previous sermon. And uh, the author does a great job of providing detail about what individuals were wearing because what they were wearing signifies their status in society. One could never go out in public wearing clothes that were beneath them, right? In verse 6, we see the king taking off what signifies his status. And he put on a garment well below his status. So the king took off his robe and put on sackcloth. I said last week that putting on sackcloth suggested submission to God. So it suggests the king has become less than a common man. The itchy garment was a means of showing, again, humility. And so just picture in your head for a moment what it would look like for, go- for a government leader in our society to respond like the king of Nineveh. He or she goes from wearing the finest clothes, right? The most expensive clothes, the, you know, the ones with all the jewels. And then they go from that to like wearing a potato or a coffee bean sack. Perhaps imagine yourself putting on a potato sack showing your submission to God. The last step of personal repentance from the king is that he sat in ashes. Now, I I admit that sitting in ashes is a bit foreign to us, right? Um, I've never heard of uh, a contemporary story about someone repenting by going to their fireplace, their wood fireplace, and digging out the ashes and like kind of just putting it down on the ground and then just sitting in it, right? But the king's actions here was the ultimate display of self-humiliation. Proud people uh, do not take the steps of this king. <laughs> he was in fear of God's wrath, and God's wrath put him in his place. He put him in a place of humility. Now, there are at least two lessons we can take away from the king's actions. First, I find it ironic that the man of God, Jonah, needed to be humbled by God. But this malicious and wicked king moved toward repentance and humility the moment he realized Jonah's words were true. One would hope Jonah is learning a valuable lesson as he observes uh, Nineveh's change, including the change of the king. More on that next week. For our purposes, we can remember it is never too late for a person to turn from sin and to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. The actions of the king instructs how we can perceive those around us who are equally uh, wicked and malicious, right? We, we, can never, we should never give up hope 
that God could be at work in somebody we perceive could be far from God. We, can, we, can, we should never give up hope. Another takeaway from the king's example should be more obvious. Uh, we need to pray that our leaders, Democrat, Republican, or otherwise, also humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. We need to pray that our leaders take our communities, cities, states, and country into a direction that upholds the common good, values the rule of law as defined by Holy Scripture, executing justice, upholding mercy, abounding in love, Leaders that seek to care for people in all social and economic statuses. I mean, wouldn't it be something if we had leaders who take uh, the precedent step? I say it's been precedent because of what we see here with the king of Nineveh. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we saw leaders do that? I mean, not necessarily in that particular context, wearing sackcloth and going into ashes, but moving toward humility, realizing what it means to uphold particular values that God values. Again, I'm not suggesting America is or needs to be uh, a Christian country. I have no illusions about that. I think hoping for such an idea is just living in uh, fantasy land. What I am saying is that when a society upholds biblical values and participates, uh, biblical values and principles, and then allows people in society to flourish, then they're leading well. The king of Nineveh moves into the direction of his society flourishing when he put out a proclamation to the city, right? And here it is, verses 7 to 9. I'm going to read it in full. And he, the king, issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd or flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There are several points I want to make about the details of this proclamation. First, the king's proclamation is all-encompassing. He not only wants the people to fast, but he wants to make sure the, the animals are fasting, right? Now, this seems bo- uh, bizarre to our modern-day sensibilities. I mean, when I'm, when I'm fasting, I'm not depriving my dog Winston of the food. It's not like I'm thinking, hey, well, if you can't enjoy food, then you need to, if I can't enjoy food, then you need to join me in not enjoying food, Winston, you know? Uh, uh, to up the ante a bit, the king says that the people and the animals need to wear sackcloth, right? And okay. I get people wearing sackcloth. We've talked about that for two weeks now. But animals? Like, I I personally have just this moral problem, and I'm joking here, but this idea that animals shouldn't wear any type of clothes. Now you're saying put sackcloth on them? Are you kidding me? But here the king is like, get your dog a coffee bean sack and have him wear it. So big picture question here is what is going on here? Right, right? What is the king trying to say by including the animals in his proclamation for fasting? Well, truth be told, we don't know for sure, but I think the answer could have to do with the pagan religious culture of Nineveh. And there is some evidence to suggest that animals were involved in the rites of humiliation and mourning in 18th century B.C., right? 
you, you couple this with the fact that the king is desperate for radical moral change, then I think you find an entire city willing to give up all comforts to make themselves physically miserable. It is this idea of, if I'm doing this, you're doing it, because I want to make sure we're all in the same place here. So Winston, yeah, come on over here. You're not eating, and uh, guess what? Here's some sackcloth. <laughs> now, we can't underestimate the significance of the actions of the king and the people of Nineveh here. I mean, like, have you ever fasted before? Uh, some folks fast. Some folks who fast struggle to get through, like, two meals, and they're like, all right, I'm just going to have a bowl of ice cream. <laughs> I mean, I know folks who have been on a diet, but couch the diet as a spiritual fast. That's not what's going on here with the Ninevites. They deprive themselves of what they desire. They, they de- deprive themselves of pleasures. Their goal in fasting was to present themselves in submission to the God, the only God, who, who could wipe them off of the face of the earth. Their pursuit of repentance, I think, seems genuine here. I think like we get the picture, God, we heard the message, and uh, we're all in. In addition to fasting, it says in verse 8 that everyone mightily called out to God. The word for call in the Hebrew gives the idea that there is like an, an emotion behind this call. It isn't like the moments when I call my kiddos in from the outside and say, hey, dinner's ready. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. No, the Ninevites cried out to God. Their cries were like shouts of, they were like shouts to the God of the universe. Behind their, their cries was desperation that God would see their actions, hear their words, and see their hearts. I mean, let's get real for a moment and apply this to our lives. When you repent of sin, is it half-hearted? Do you just want to get on with getting on? All right, I got caught. Um, I'm sorry, and I need to move on, right? I got things to do. Or do you cry out to God? Do you grieve your sin? Do you cry out with Psalm 51 in mind? Here's just the first four verses, but the entire psalm is a beautiful cry of repentance. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Like This is the cry of a desperate individual here. In this case, David. Verse 3, for, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So again, do you hear the depth of emotion in this psalm? Do you hear the brokenness of the one crying out in this psalm? Have mercy on me, O God. I deserve your retributive justice. So have mercy. There is one final point that needs to be made from verses 7 to 9. And perhaps this is the most important point to be made as it pertains to the Ninevites. The proclamation of the king urges the people to turn from their evil ways, right? To turn from their, what it says here, the violence that is caused by their hands. It's interesting that the king of Nineveh makes this very personal. Like, your hands, people, have created, you individually, these hands have caused wickedness and evil. The call 
to turn from evil and wickedness is the reason why God called Jonah to Nineveh in the first place. Beyond fasting and crying out to God, this is what needs to happen right here. An intentional about face from evil and towards good. A turn from taking advantage of others to caring for others. A turn from the brutality of wars toward pursuing peace. At the end of the day, the Lord wants to see if Nineveh's repentance is carried out in their everyday lives. It's not unreasonable to suggest, I think, that while it seems there was a grassroots movement of change throughout the city, like there's a culture change within the city, uh, I don't think it's wild to suggest that to, to, to maintain this change, the king needed to get on board. Even his question in verse 9 suggests the sobriety of this king. How he does not know if God will relent from his fierce anger, but perhaps God will if Nineveh can demonstrate its repentance and change. And the king at first was behind all the citizens in a sense of he didn't know what was going on. But as we see, he's now leading the campaign of change. So, did God relent from destroying Nineveh, unlike when we, what we see when he executed retributive justice on Sodom? Yes. In this case, God did relent. He relented and extended his mercy to Nineveh. At least for this generation, Nineveh was spared. The relenting of wrath on Nineveh does lead to the question of God's sovereignty and man's interaction with God to see a seemingly predetermined course changed. Um, It's a really tricky question, but it's important just to mention, and perhaps you can uh, dive into it later on your own. We see clearly in the story of Jonah that God had willed the destruction of Nineveh unless they repented. The question on the table is this, can our actions change the course of God's sovereign will? To say it plainly, when your friend is in the hospital with an illness and you plead to God for healing, do your prayers count for anything to God when determining the fate of your friend? Now, I do not want to get into the weeds too long on this point, but the answer is yes. Your prayers do matter to the sovereign God of the universe. I mean, it's clear from the book of Jonah that God did not wipe Nineveh off the face of the earth, at least not yet. He didn't wipe them off because of their actions. Because of their repentance, God extended mercy. In one sense, what we see here is God's decreative will Uh, being executed like his decree to will can't be changed by our actions God is sovereign he is in control there's nothing you can do when God wills something there's nothing you can do to change God's mind as it were Um, but there is another aspect of God's will that is perceptive Uh, theologian Wayne Grudem calls this God's uh, secret will Again, I do not want to get lost in the weeds, but here's the brass tacks. Listen to John Frame, a, a theologian who I respect, a Reformed theologian. Let him sort out the weeds for us. And I quote, God's decreative will is simply God's decree. 
It is, it is eternal in its purpose, by which he foreordains everything that comes to pass. God's perceptive will, so we got decreative will, perceptive will, God's perceptive will is his valuations, particularly as revealed to us in his word, his precepts. The decreative will focuses on God's lordship attribute of control. The perceptive will on his lordship attribute of authority. God's decreative will cannot be successfully opposed. It will certainly take place. It is possible, however, and often the case, for creatures to disobey God's perceptive will. So we have laws, we have rules. Like, you know, go back to the story at the beginning. I told my kids, don't go into the road, right? In a sense, I'm, I'm trying to extend my will to them. I'm giving them a precept, a rule. But they can disobey that. Point being, God is sovereign and has foreordained and foreknows all things and our actions are taken into account by God. Now, let's get firmly out of the weeds here because I think there's a little bit of what we see here with Nineveh. Uh, The destruction of Nineveh is clearly conditioned. If they repent from their evil ways, God will relent. If they do not repent, God will execute his retributive justice. Of course, we read God relents. God does relent from exercising his retributive justice when sincere and honest repentance to the Lord is shown. What we read in verses 6 to 10 is a part, and I mentioned this the first week, is a part of a greater story arc of God's faithfulness. We read of God's faithfulness between Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and uh, Revelation, the last book of the Bible. This story points to a faithful God who extends mercy on all who sincerely and genuinely repent from sin and put their trust in God. And without a doubt, the culmination of God's mercy is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. At the death of Jesus, the full payment and punishment of your sin was nailed to the cross with your sinless Savior. At the cross, God's mercy was unleashed to all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to end with this. If you are listening or watching and you have always wondered what to do with your wrongs or what the Bible calls sin, well, faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, calling Jesus your Lord and Savior means your sin has been accounted for and you are forgiven. And you can live free, basking in the grace and mercy of God. And perhaps... Right now, just like the Ninevites, God is calling you to repent from your wicked and evil ways, to repent from your sin, and to turn and to trust Him as your all-satisfying and faithful God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are good, and in your goodness you extend and exercise mercy to a sinful people. Lord, help us to grasp the reality of that. Help us to grasp the reality that indeed you are sovereign, but as a sovereign God, you call us to live a life of repentance. You call us to live a life of turning to you. And by the power of your spirit, continue to to draw us deeper in love with who you are and your goodness. Help us to embrace all that you have regarding your mercy and your grace. We want to continue to grow into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that it is for our good, but also for the honor and glory of your name. And so we pray all these things 
in Jesus' name, amen.